Matthew chapter 6. Be reading starting in verse 5 through verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity for us to be able to come and hear your word and study your word, um, be in your word. And Lord, we know as we read this text today, as it's largely and mostly and all about prayer. God, I pray that all of us, um, as we hear these words, as we read these words, as we study your words about prayer, that we would think and reflect on our own life and what our prayer life looks like. And, and whether it's outstanding or lackluster, Lord, that you would... Um, help us <clears throat> not be too proud if it's great. And Lord, that you would help us, if it's not great, feel too defeated. But know that you have a design and you have um, a reason that you've given us this gift that we can come and talk to you as our Father and let you know what's going on in our lives and, and praise you for who you are. And that you've given us this great gift of prayer. And I pray that... <clears throat> that we would be encouraged to want to either continue or to begin an, a great prayer life in our lives. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be something that we come and, and kind of hear and go and think that sounds good and then go and not be changed. But Lord, um, this message this morning um, in regard to prayer is life-changing. If all of us could get a glimpse of having an outstanding, glorious prayer life in our lives, Lord, it would change our entire life if all of a sudden we became war prayer warriors, people of prayer who depend upon the Spirit of Christ to lead us in our life all the time, depend upon God, our Father, to go to and declare how much we need Him, and depend upon the righteousness of Christ, our only way that we can come to God the Father that's been granted to us because of the cross. So Lord, if we would um, get a hold of this, that you would grant that to us this morning, that we could understand what a, 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 a great prayer life would look like, Lord, that our life would change. And so would you come now by the power of your Spirit and open up our minds, open up our hearts, open up our intellect to see and understand it, but not just our intellect, but our hearts and emotions and our affections to desperately want it in our life. We love you, Lord, and we pray your guidance as we look at your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in, chap we're in chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. And so um, <laughs> I don't want to do too much review, but just to kind of help you understand what's going on. Um, the book of Matthew is written by 
uh, Matthew, clearly, and written to primarily a Jewish audience. And so this Jewish audience, as Matthew um, is, is unpacking chapter by chapter, um, really a lot of the Old Testament texts, what he's wanting them to see, these people who are Jewish, who are very much acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he's wanting them to look back to the Old Testament scriptures and see all the, the, the prophetic statements about this coming Messiah. And as they look back at all these prophetic statements about the coming Messiah, he's wanting them to look at Jesus and say, this man Jesus, that we're that's in our midst, the scriptures of the Old Testament are about him. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the Savior of the world. He is the only hope in which we have. And we must follow him. We must put our faith in him and let him be our Savior. And so he's wanting them to really see this. And so um, we found ourselves here in, in chapters 5 through 7, which makes up what, what is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and really, uh, just so you can kind of understand, the Sermon on the Mount has a structure to it. It has, it has something to it where Christ is wanting us to start with the Beatitudes, really start with the gospel. And it says in 423 that he went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so Christ comes and starts the Sermon on the Mount with the gospel as he takes us through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And after he gives us the gospel, he, he goes into, um, he goes into salt and light saying, now based on the gospel, this is what your life should look like. It should be salt, it should be light. And then after that, there's, there's some misunderstandings that those who were Jewish had. And so he finishes up chapter 5, um, showing them the six misunderstandings that they have. Now, as he finishes, uh, as he finishes telling them about the six most misunderstandings of the law that they have, now, you gotta understand, the Bible wasn't written with chapter and verse divisions. And so, as we finish up with chapter, 548 it says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect he rolls right into 61 as he tells them to be perfect and the reason why he's telling them to be perfect is um, to help them see that they don't have a righteousness of their own they never will have a righteousness of their own it tells us that also in 520 for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven now everyone that was a jew there understood that the pharisees practice righteousness externally um, so that everyone could see. Everyone knew how righteous they were. And he's telling them, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, then you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these guys, these people who are Jewish, are looking at the scribes and Pharisees and saying, wow, their external righteousness is unbelievable. I mean, everybody knows just how righteous, just how much they love God. And you're telling me I have to exceed that? And you're also telling me in 548 that I must be perfect? Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, he unpacked it for us in the Beatitudes. Faith in Jesus faith in His work on the cross, the imputed righteousness of God where He declares you 100% righteous because He was perfect. He gives you all of His righteousness and now you are righteous because of Jesus. It's not moral um, aptitude that makes you saved. It's not how good you can behave and how if you just have more good stuff than bad stuff, then all of a sudden you have a right standing. That's not the idea. The idea is the gospel of the kingdom, which 423 tells us, is faith in Jesus and then all of your sin has been put on Christ. All the wrath of God was put on Jesus for you for your behalf. And now he gives you his righteousness. And then what happens is we go into 6. After he tells us, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he goes into chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people now why? Why must we beware of practicing our righteousness before other people? 
Because 5.16 tells us, this is just still review, 5.16 tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your fa- the God your Father. So, is it don't do good works in front of others, or is it do good works in front of others? 5.16 tells us to make sure we're doing good works in front of others, so they'll give glory to God the Father. 6.1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of doing good works in front of others. Which one is it? Well, it's really obvious if you keep reading, because the rest of six one tells us, in order to be seen by them. So it's not the doing of good works in front of people, that's the question. It's the motive behind it. 5.16 says we do good works so that they'll give glory to God the Father. 6.1 tells us that if we practice our righteousness or we do good works in order to be seen, in order that they don't give glory to God the Father, but they just give us all the glory and we become glory hogs and we think it's everything's about us, well, then that's not good. And then... And verses 1 through 18 in chapter 6, verse 1 kind of kind of serves as our, our kind of overall umbrella text to give us these three acts of righteousness, three, three pious acts of righteousness that we need to beware of. And he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So if you're, if you're doing it in order to be seen by them, you want the glory. You don't want Christ to get the glory. And it says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. In other words, if you're the glory hog, then you're going to get glory, but it's going to be from other people. They're going to say, oh, you are just so amazing. You're so wonderful. Wow, the way you handle that, oh. And if you're doing it, if you're doing those good works just so they'll say that, well, then you get your reward, which is man's praise. But you don't get the reward of the Father. And we talked about this last week. The reward of the Father is always going to be infinitely better, infinitely more important to attain than man's praise. All right, and so we talked about two of them last week. What are these, these three cautionary acts of piety? Uh, piety just means uh, piousness, uh, doing good works in front of, of other people, um, godliness, holiness, and there's three acts that, we, that we're supposed to do. Now, when we say beware, in verse 1, beware of practicing, when we say these are cautionary, this doesn't mean, well, since they're so dangerous for me to do them, I'm just not going to do them. I'm going to run over here and just, just put myself in a big fort. I'm never going to do good works in front of others just because I'm going to be, I have this, you know, this idea that I'm probably going to be a glory hog and so and not going to want to give glory to God, so I'm just going to not do them. That's the safe thing. That's not the idea at all. You still do them. We talked about this last week. Um, Christ assumes that his children are going to do acts of piousness. So there's three of them. And we can see them. In verses 2 through 4, we talked about giving. And so the first act of piousness that we, we talked about is our giving is to be generous and anonymous. So we're supposed to be huge givers as, the belie- as believers in Christ because God, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 8, has been a tremendous giver, a very generous giver to us by giving us His Son. But we're also, also sup- supposed to be anonymous when we do it. And that was the gist of 2 through 4 when He says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say, they've already received their reward, which is everybody's going to think they're awesome. But when you give to the needy, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And your giving may be seen in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And so we see that the first act of piety, which we're supposed to do, is giving. But we have to be careful as we do it. Not to just kind of 
Sound the trumpet as we're giving it. Everybody look at what I'm doing. Watch me give this gift to this poor person because the poor person is going to appreciate it no matter what. They're going to say, thank you for the gift. I have a need. So we, we can't just think that just because they think we're awesome that it was for, that it was for Jesus. All right, so the third one we saw, I skipped number two. Um, I went straight to the third one, which is in verse 16. Um, and it says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. So the third one was this. Um, I'm not even sure this made it on the screen last week, but this is the, uh, this is the third act of piety. Our fasting should be for Jesus' glory, not ours. And we saw that in verses 16 through 18. Our fasting should be for Jesus' glory, not ours. So in, in essence, when you feel pressed in by Christ, by the Lord, to fast, and we, we know that we're supposed to fast. He tells us that in John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17. He tells us that whenever the king is gone, you will fast for my second coming. That's in Matthew 9, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. But when we fast, basically the gist is don't tell other people. Don't do it for the praise of men. Take a shower. Make sure no one knows. Don't look gloomy. Don't, you know, whatever. Anoint your head. Um, and so we skipped the, sick, the second one last week because it's got an extended little piece of teaching. And so we're coming to the second one today. And here's my plan. Here's my goal. I don't think I'm going to meet my goal, but I'm going to try to do it anyway. All right. <laughs> the goal is I want to talk about the second one, which will round up all three of these things in verses 1 through 18. And then after I finish the second one, we're going to target in on verses 9 through 13, which is the model prayer of the Lord. And there's there's. I know, seven things that I want you to see in there, which means I'll probably get to a couple of them and then it'll be time for us to go. But if I can get all of them done, then that'll be a, my Mother's Day gift to all of you. All right, um, so let's look at the text here and let's see uh, about prayer. Now remember, all three of these things are told to us to beware, but beware doesn't mean don't do them. So the first one we're supposed to give generously and anonymously. The last one, we're supposed to fast. I don't know how often you fast. I don't know, you know, if it's a practice of yours. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you have to do weekly, but there is a sense in which we're fasting. And of course, there's, there's some play in what you might fast. Some people might fast food. Some people might fast um, TV, whatever. Um, but the point is that when you fast from food or whatever you're fasting from, that time that you don't have food, that time that you don't have TV, that time that you don't have music or whatever, you don't just kind of stay in la-la land in neutral zone, but you feast on Jesus during that time. Your free time of fasting means feasting on Christ, more time in the Word, more time in prayer, more time praying and asking Christ um, for His help in regard to the thing that you're fasting for. All right, so anyway, here we go to the prayer. Um, and again, this is just absolutely so obvious, but the Lord is assuming that we will pray. He's assuming that we will pray. Now, before we jump into prayer, um, I want to kind of talk about prayer just for a second, because I think all of us would say, um, you know, I, I, I truly desire a deep life of prayer. I truly do. But when um, most of you, if you're honest, um, and when I have conversations with people, most people who are honest kind of say, this describes my prayer life. Minimalism, rote, just saying kind of the same thing, and, and guilt, I feel like I should pray way more than I do. Um, and usually, the times we pray is whenever we feel pain. Like last week, this is kind of an illustration. Last week, 
I, I got a tetanus shot in my shoulder. I don't know if y'all have ever had a tetanus shot, but these things are murderous. And so for about 10 days now, I keep telling Christy, I think my arm's getting worse. Like the poison was so deeply injected, I think that my shoulder is going to just fall off one day. Um, and so that reminds me to pray, like pain is hitting my arm. And I just, Lord, make my shoulder feel better. I don't have a good range of motion. And I, I want to be able to use my shoulder better. But that's, that's, the idea is whenever we feel pain, oh, pain, pray. Um, and that kind of describes, I think, the large majority of, our, of, of Christians as I have conversations, which is a, a, a minimalism, which I very, very rarely remember. It's only when I feel pain. It's very rote. I don't ever know what to say. And I feel guilty. I don't, don't very much um, hear words like vibrant, lively, deep, intimate, passion, love, whenever they're describing their prayer times. Usually it's, oh, I just wish it, I could be much better. Um, I just kind of say the same thing whenever I'm praying. And usually I just kind of feel guilty because I don't do it enough. So what I'm wanting to, as we look at this, and as, as maybe probably over the next two weeks, as we're looking at this, is not for you to feel guilty, um, but instead for you to start having a great prayer life that you experience, um, that you see the need for prayer so deeply that you, you, you want to jump in and be a, a huge prayer warrior. Whenever I was at Charleston Southern, this is where I went to school. I went to USC for a while. I went for the, uh, for the long-term plan when it comes to college. I was one of those um, long-term students. <clears throat> and it wasn't because I was so smart. So anyway, um, so I was at CSU for a little while. Um, and I, I got there, I transferred there in January of 90-something. Um, and whenever I got there, mid-90s, whenever I got there, I met Christy the very first day I was there. Um, <clears throat> and... We hung out a good bit, and I could tell, you know, that she was pretty into me. And so, um, <laughs> I'm going to pay for that one later. Happy Mother's Day. So anyway, uh, we got there at January, and we hung out for a while. And so what I would do, honestly, is um, I just started making up stuff just so we could hang out more. I was like, oh, you know, hey, we should, uh, we should do laundry. You know, I know they got laundry rooms here, but what I want to do is go to a place off campus and uh, just do laundry. I would just make up stuff that we could go, because I just wanted to find places where I could create an environment where we were going to get to hang out more. And that's the whole idea with prayer, all right? The whole idea is I'm so enamored, infatuated, in love with, I'm so happy whenever I'm around you, I want to create environments that there's more time to be together. There's more time to be intimate. There's more time to get to know each other. There's more time that we can spend with one another. And that's the idea about prayer. That's, that's my goal here, is that we're going to hopefully peek in to just how great and glorious Christ is in our life that we want to not have minimalism or rote, but create more time to be with him, more experience, more more time that we can be intimate with him and let him know what's going on in our lives. So verse five, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, um, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So we see the, their goal, the hypocrites, which just basically means in the Greek actor, they put on a mask and they act, play act a part and they take it off and there's somebody else. He's saying that don't be a hypocrite. Don't be an actor. Don't act like you love Jesus. Don't just pray so that you can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, now he's going to tell us something. Notice here, because it would be really easy to kind of mistake what he's saying. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who sees in secret, um, 
who is in secret, and your father who sees you will reward. So here's the second, here's the second thing um, that I want you to see. Giving and fasting, and here's the second one um, when it talks about acts of piety. Our prayer should not be for self-exaltation, but to exalt God and gain, gain intimacy with Him. That's the point of prayer. The point of prayer is not to be self-exalted, as he's saying. Don't do it in front of others so that they just think that you're the most magnificent prayer person. It, it's not, now listen, it's not discounting public prayers. It's saying don't do them in order that people will think you're awesome. Um, but not saying you don't do them at all. So our prayers should not be for self-exaltation, but to exalt God and gain intimacy with Him. And I'm going to prove Hopefully, the gain intimacy with him as we look at the model prayer in 9 through 13. Um, now, here's the deal. Um, if this has been your practice, which, you know, it may not have been, but if this has been your practice where your prayer life um, is about you looking good in front of other people rather than trying to make Christ look good, if you're a believer in God, the gospel is great news for you and me. It's great news because... Since Christ has died for us on our behalf and all of his righteousness has been given to us, praise God that you're righteous because of Jesus. And so that sin of wanting the glory of God has already been forgiven because of the cross. And so instead of um, running away from God and feeling guilty, you run to the cross, you confess and repent, believe in his righteousness that's been given to you, and know that God is not angry at you because all of his anger has been put on Jesus for you, you wanting or me wanting the glory, and that he just wants you now to come in and he wants you to be intimate with him. Now, when you pray, when you pray, it's telling us that we, Jesus is assuming that we will pray, but... He says this, don't pray and stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. Instead, go to your room and shut the door. Go to your room and shut the door. Now, the critical point here, if, the, if we didn't look at the context that it's giving, prayer, and fasting, if we just kind of zoned in on there, we would think that Jesus has really wanted to talk more about location than anything instead of motives. But if we, we zoom out and realize that this is in a context of giving, prayer, and fasting, and the whole point is motives behind why we do them, then we're, we would make the, the whole thing about prayer, we'd, we'd say, oh, Jesus is just wanting to talk about location or position. He's really in, concerned that you run away from people when you pray, shut the door and do it in private, and that he wants you to fall down on the ground and, and shut the door and, and, and be um, at... At a, at, a pro, at a prone position laying down on the floor. He's really serious about that. Um, rather than thinking he's actually talking about the heart, he's actually talking about the motives, and he's not banning public prayer. Um, just a couple things that's going on in the first century so you can understand why Jesus is saying this. And as he's saying this, remember, Matthew's writing to Jews. He, Jesus is preaching this to people who are primarily Jewish. And so they understand the context of what Jesus is saying. Um, a man would usually go into the synagogue in front of the congregation and he would be tempted to desire for the congregation to think that he's awesome and that he would want some of the status and he would want to pray better than the guy last week. And so he would stand up and he would he would pray like crazy and, and, and throw up all these lofty titles of God. And that's why when he says, and when you pray, say, Our Father, 
not all these lofty titles. And he also says that he would start just repeating phrases and starting getting worked up and saying some of the same things over and over. And that's why he says in verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. This empty phrases translated better is uh, vain repetitions, just kind of saying the same thing over and over and over, maybe lifting your voice a little bit higher as you do it, trying to trying to build up a uh, an emotion. And it, Jesus is saying... Um, this is problematic. Those who were praying this way, this isn't good. Instead, I want you to go into your room and shut the door. He's not forbidding public prayer. It's all about motive. And we know that. It, just one more obvious reason that he's not joining, uh, banning public prayer. Look at the model prayer itself. The model prayer um, never has a, has a first person singular. It's always first person plural. Our Father. Um, us. Us, we, us. And so there's, a, there's a, even a context in there that if, if it's in first person plural, then clearly we're praying together as Christians in, in, in places. That there's, a, there's a place for public prayers that as we pray in public though, it's not supposed to be for our glory. Instead, it's supposed to lift high the name of God and to be intimate with Him. All right. So, um, let's go ahead and go over to the model prayer and I just want to give you some keys here as we're going into really uh, verses 7 through 15 and as we zone in on 9 through 13. Um, so and some keys that we need to see is, first of all, we're supposed to go into, the, go into the room and close the door. Basically, this time is for intimacy with God. Um, also, we're not supposed to heap up empty phrases. We're not supposed to just have babbling, vain repetitions. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus tells his contemporary hearers that much of their praying is akin to this babbling found among pagans. And I'm certain that if he were addressing us directly, he would tell us the same thing. We kind of say the same thing over and over. We use the same words. Whenever I was at uh, a camp, um, this was in, I don't know, 2000-something earlier, uh, I worked at this one camp and... There was a guy named BJ, and whenever we would have staff prayer, uh, BJ and I became pretty good friends, and we started noticing a little, a little, now listen, don't do this, okay? Don't do this. But um, whenever we started praying together, we started noticing a little pattern, and we sat beside each other, and every time we noticed it, whenever we would pray together as a group, I'm saying, this is horrible, so don't do this. We would kind of hit each other on the leg, and I had a word where I'd hit him on the leg, and he had a word that he heard that he would hit me on the leg, and these were the words. Anytime I ever heard someone say, just... I would hit him on the leg. And anytime he ever heard somebody use another name of God, he would hit me on the leg. So like you would hear, God, God, Lord, God, we just pray, Lord, that you would just, God, Lord, Father. We don't talk like that to each other. We don't say, like, I don't come up and say, hey, Christy, I just want to tell you, Christy, Christy, I just want to say, Christy, what would I need to do? Like, so the idea is in prayer that it's not, this is vain repetition. The idea isn't just to try to say someone's name over and over because that's not necessarily intimate or just. Would you just, 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 I just pray just, Lord, that we could just come. There's a lot of justs in there. Um, There's no just in the model prayer. Um, But, and that's kind of the idea is that we find ourselves, um, and we don't don't mean to do it. It's not like we're doing it with bad motives. I'm going to say the word just a lot just so I can, that's not the idea. But we find ourselves basically using a lot of vain, empty phrases rather than maybe um, just talking to him the way that we would talk to our, our earthly father and look at our, our heavenly father and want to have intimacy with him and just tell him what's going on in our life. So he, he's kind of telling us not to have these empty phrases. No, don't listen to each other if you accidentally say just when you're praying together. Um, <laughs> and here's the key in verse 8. Don't be like them. You know why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is kind of taking away the idea that if we repeat ourselves as much as we can, if we go to God and like the amount of prayers for something actually causes it to happen. God already knows. It's not the amount of times, the repetition or the length that makes our prayer effective. It's none of those things. It's our heart coming to our father and saying, Lord, this is what's going on. This is where I need your help. This is why I love you. You are so holy. You're my father. Those kinds of things. Um, now, he's, he's inviting us in to have intimacy with him. And so, as Jesus gives us the model prayer in verse 9, where he says, pray then like this. This is not the how. This, I'm sorry, this is the how, not the what. This is how you pray. This is not what you pray. You, I mean, there's, there's value in saying the actual Lord's Prayer word for word. There's value in that, no question. But this is really more of a, this is how you pray. These are the things that I want you to have in your prayers. Um, and this is going to be an outline. There's, there's a couple of things I want you to notice before we go in. First of all, um, how much this prayer talks about God versus how much when we pray, we just talk about ourselves. There's quite a bit. The first half is all about God before he actually gets to particular petitions for yourself. And I would say, if you would even notice with me, um, the first half is all about God. The second half is about us. And notice I said us and not me. So even the petitions where we ask for things are done in, in first person plural. When he says, um, forgive us our debts, give us this day. He's not saying give me, me, me. So the second thing is, which kind of leads into my second, every pronoun is first person plural, not first person singular, even the section with petitions, and D.A. Carson kind of pointed out, which is just highlighting our 21st century, century thought life where we are thoroughly individualistic. We are just so individualistic when it comes to not just our prayer life, but our Christian life. Everything's about me. And that's just foreign to the first century mind. The first century mind is filled with, this is us as a body, as a church. We pray together. We are Christians together. And in Acts 2, they had everything in common and they helped one another. It's just, it's just so in, ruggedly individualistic in America, especially in the 21st century. And that's just, that's just not in the model. That's another thing I want you to see. Um, and the other thing I want you to notice, as I said, that this is an outline. This is an outline. This is how you pray, not what you pray. Um, and so this isn't to be followed as rote, because if you just say this thing over and over, then you're right back to the same thing, where it's just like, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm having intimacy. This outline, this model prayer, is to serve to us to help our prayer lives become more full, help our prayer lives become more intimate with God. So this is just an outline, not the actual word-by-word -word thing, which you can say word-by-word -word sometimes, but you don't have to say it word-for-word. -word. Um, and, and this is an outline. All right, so there's seven things I want you to see in here, and, and I don't feel like I'm going to come close to doing them all. I have no idea what time it is, but um, these are the seven things. First of all, um, in the very first two words, Our Father... Our Father. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Um, an element of prayer is this. Acknowledge here the invitation that's being extended and hopefully accepted by you to be a son or a daughter of God. Acknowledge the invitation to be a son or a daughter of God. Um, all right. This is an incredible thought at the time for someone who is Jewish to hear. 
This is an absolute incredible thought of the Jews for them to hear at this particular time. They had very high and lofty titles for God, which is rightly so. They should have high and lofty titles. They usually called him the sovereign Lord. They called him the king of the universe. And now Jesus is telling those who are Jewish, who had a thorough understanding of who God was, and a very high view of God the Father. He's telling them to say, call me, call God Father. You don't have to just say sovereign Lord, king of the universe. He's saying, call him personal father. Um, in the Aramaic, in, in Romans 8, 16, I think it is, 15, 15 I'm sorry. Um, in Aramaic, it's, it's, the word is used Abba. The word is used Abba. It's, and and this, this is not quite as personal as daddy, but certainly not as impersonal as father. Like if my children come up and say, Father, I feel like they've been watching Sound of Music too much. Um, so it's not quite as impersonal as, as father, but it's not quite as, as like, hey, daddy. It's, it's more, um, one of the commentators said that it's more kind of falling in the middle of there. And we have a little bit of one of those in, in our English language where sometimes some children will call their dads Papa. And so that's what it is. It's that, it's that middle, very inti- intimate, but still very much reverent towards the Father. But He's inviting you in not to just call Him Sovereign Lord. You're so distant and far. But He's calling, you're getting to call Him Father. And for Jews to hear this, you have to realize this is an incredible thought for them to get to hear. I can call Him Father? I can call Him Abba? He's so distant and so great and so tremendously huge that I, I get to have a deep relationship with. So in our Father, we can see we're acknowledging the invitation that we get to be called a son or daughter of His. Romans 8.15 says that this is why we're a son or daughter. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So because of the blood of Christ... Because of his, his death on the cross, you now and I now have the right and privilege as sons and daughters of God to come to him. And he's not just some distant, far deity, but now we are intimately related with him and we can call him Papa or Abba. God is calling you into intimacy with him, deep intimacy. J.I. Packer commenting on this idea. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If you want to know how deep somebody's walk is with Christ, find out how much they they think and how much they're just amazed in the fact that they're God's child and God's their father. And he says, if this is not the thought that prompts, if they when they think about being his father, if this thought doesn't prompt and control their worship and their prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity, Christianity very well at all. You, if you're in Christ, are a child of God. And He's inviting you in to call Him Father. That alone is reason enough to just say, I can't believe the Creator of the universe and the Creator of me who intricately wove me together in my, in my mother's womb has invited me and called me into Christ and asked me that I can approach His throne boldly, as Hebrew says, and call Him not Sovereign Lord, not King of the Universe, although we should do that sometimes. That goes into the second point. But I get to call Him 
Abba, Papa, Father. You have intimacy now because of Christ with God. Only did one. All right, we're going to... uh, we're going to have to... Let me do one more. Let me do one more because the second one really balances off the first one and then, then we'll close. Here's, this, here's the next one. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here's the second thing. Now we're seeing... This is kind of in contrast to the first. In the first we've seen Father. Now he's saying, in heaven, hallowed be your name. So... Heaven is distant and far, hallowed, holy. He is so much more holy than we are. When we look at His holiness in comparison to ourselves and our sinfulness, we see transcendence, we see greatness, we see vastness. And so we're not just wanting to highlight the intimacy that we have with Him, but now the second part highlights the vastness and transcendence of the Father. So He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. So here's the second element of prayer. The second one, the first ones were intimate. The second one is acknowledge his transcendence. That means how far off he is, how great he is, how magnificent he is. This is, this is not done very often in America. Very much in, in our, in our cu- culture, it's very much always highlighting the, the eminence of the Father, the closeness of Jesus, the, the intimacy we have, which is good, very good. But it's sometimes done without also highlighting his transcendence, which makes us realize and remember that he is very much other than us. He is holy and we are not. So we should, as we come to prayer, acknowledge his transcendence and his holiness. And as we acknowledge those things, thereby our sinfulness. Those are huge. Huge. We have to see ourselves and remind ourselves just how sinful we are which makes us much more thankful for Christ. So he is highlighting here that he's in heaven and his name is holy. So we acknowledge not only... And notice, so far I haven't said anything about your needs. We haven't come up with our laundry list. God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. All we've done so far is talk to God about how great and glorious he is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here we're acknowledging his transcendence and his holiness and thereby our sinfulness. He is huge. He is in heaven. That's not to say he's not eminent. Of course he is. But here we're wanting to highlight his absolute vastness, which in today's day and age seems to not be portrayed very often. It's just highlighting the eminence, which is okay. And then it says, hallowed be your name. Now this is key. This is not asking God's name to become holy or to become hallowed, because it already is. Whether we acknowledge and give glory to God, it certainly doesn't add to His glory. His glory is as infinite as it can be. So we, we are not necessarily saying, God, you're becoming more holy. He can't become more holy. He's God. So as we say, hallowed be your name, we're asking that His name would be treated as holy, that He would be revered, that His name would not be despised by the thoughts and the conducts of His children, rather that they would... Um, with their thoughts and conduct, revere Him and treat Him as holy. Hallowed be Your name. So here's the truth. Here's, here's the key thing we need to see here. Christ's followers, this is from D.A. Carson, he says, Christ's followers are asking their Heavenly Father to act in such a way that they and an increasing number of others will reverence God, will glorify Him, will consider Him holy and acknowledge Him. 
That's what we're saying when we say, in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're pleading with him that we would have conduct that's appropriate to his holiness. That we would acknowledge just how sinful we are. And as we acknowledge just how sinful we are, we acknowledge our utter dependence on him. Our utter dependence on him. And our absolute need for the cross of Christ and his gospel. Acknowledge just how holy he is and just how sinful we are. Which only drives us back to Christ. Which only helps us see our absolute need for Jesus. So here, as we're studying so far, the clear implications are that we should pray. That we absolutely should be prayer people. We shouldn't be scared of it. We shouldn't barely do it. We shouldn't approach God monthly and weekly. But we should see that He's calling us to be His child. And we get to call Him Father. And that we can have deep intimacy. And for some of you, this might not be an easy thing to understand. You don't have deep intimacy with your earthly father. And to think that you can have deep intimacy with your heavenly father, you don't have categories in your mind. But that's okay. God can overcome that. He's calling you into deep intimacy with Him. But at the same time, wanting you to see that He is holy. He is in heaven, far off. And that since He is far off, He's holy and we're sinful. But that doesn't make us run in fear. That only helps us run towards the cross and the gospel and say, I can come to you boldly as my Father now because of Jesus. So... We're going, to, we're going to conclude here and we'll pick up next week here. Um, what I'd like to do as we close uh, is for us to stand. We're going to do this this week and next week. For us to stand and we'll close with the Lord's Prayer and then go into our time of worship. And as we go into our time of worship, maybe you need to just think and pray. Maybe you've just um, been shown by God just how deeply you don't have a prayer life. And maybe you want to sit and have some time of prayer and just ask God to help you... Um, your affections, your emotions, see Him as Father, see Him as Abba, Father, but also see your absolute need of of, um, recognizing His holiness in light of your sinfulness and your absolute need for the gospel. And then as you're ready, stand and sing with us and praise God with us. Let's stand and recite the Lord's Prayer and then we'll go into our time of worship. Let's pray. Our Father, and who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this truth. I pray for my friends here, Lord, that if anyone doesn't know Christ, that they would put their faith in Jesus and receive the forgiveness of Christ on the cross. And Lord, for those here that are your children, who, who would say that they don't have deep intimacy with you, that they don't have a prayer life that is um, reflective of knowing you deeply and intimately and hoping in the gospel as their only hope, Lord, would you work on their heart now? And would you show them that you want to have that deep prayer life with them? You want to have deep intimacy with them in prayer. And that you would call them out to to strive after that. Um, Lord, would you come and stir their affections right now and help them see just how awesome it is to be called your child. And just how awesome it is to be intimate with you. And give them 
a life-changing gift of a deep prayer life. Be with us now as we worship, Lord. May this time be for you and your son's glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.